Welcome to Science Section. My name is Kian, and I'm bringing you this week's Scientist of the Week segment. For today's interview, I'm going to talk to Kyle Jackson, who is a graduate student at McMaster's BioHybrids Lab. Thank you for coming to our show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. So yeah, let's start with some fun questions so our audience can get to know you a bit better. How do you define happiness? Happiness to me is kind of just pursuing what you want to do. Do. not necessarily having expectations about what you have to do but just following your dreams and following just something that really inspires you and makes you want to get out of bed every morning right that's awesome and if you could meet slash work with any scientist dead or alive who would it be i mean it's a little bit outside my field and I, I wouldn't necessarily call him a scientist, more so an innovator, but I would love to work with Elon Musk for a bit. Right. Not necessarily because like he's directly related to my field of study, but more so just because he really just knows how to think outside the box. And that kind of thought process can be just translated to whatever field you want to study. So I think really just like sitting down with him for a day or so or a week just to do these weird cool experiments we really really an awesome experience right i just saw his Neuralink presentation the other day it was super cool yeah he's proposing doing some neural implants which is really yeah. really cool <laughs> stuff but it's also very <laughs> really far out there <laughs> yeah he, he said it he was like it's gonna be like a black mirror episode <laughs> it would be it, it yeah. very much would be <laughs> yeah all right, so can you tell us about your journey to becoming a graduate student at McMaster's BioHybrids Lab? Yeah, for sure. So my, my journey to grad school was definitely not a straight line. I took a lot of twists and turns along the route. Um, as a very brief kind of summary, I came into McMaster University for my undergrad. I started in the Life Sciences One program stream. And during that first year, I got exposed to a wide variety of disciplines, including mythology, microbiology, medical sciences, medical radiation sciences, biophysics, a really wide berth of fields. And I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So going into second year, I really kind of just stayed very general. And I was kind of looking at a wide range of research opportunities. I was part of the McMaster Nudos team, which is a research team on campus that is designed a satellite. I was part of them for pretty much my whole undergrad, and it was a great experience. But I knew I always wanted to come back to the life sciences, biotech, pharmaceutical field. So in third year, I applied and was entered into the biomedical discovery and commercialization program, which is a third year entry program for two years, just your third and fourth year, which specializes in the commercialization and adoption of biomedical research. So that was a really, really cool experience for me. It got me to see the kind of the health entrepreneurship side of medicine, pharmaceuticals, biotech. And in that program, I focused a lot of my studies on the development of biotechnology and biotech strategic development from a business perspective. And in doing so, that kind of led me to my fourth year thesis um, under Dr. Zainab Puzini-Dos in the biohybrids lab. And it was a very much an applied sciences, almost virology lab. We work with, with viruses that kill bacteria 
And it was very much like the biotech core that I was looking for. And halfway or so through my fourth year thesis, I was enjoying it so much, I approached uh, Dr. Dows and she asked me if I wanted to stay on for graduate work. And I immediately said yes. I, I could not pass up the opportunity to stay on for another few more years to really advance the research that we were doing. That's so awesome. I guess a lot of students can relate to the fact that in first year, they don't know really what they want to do. But as time passes, they just figure out uh, basically yeah. journey. Yeah. For sure. I mean, a lot of people, when they come into undergrad, especially in the life sciences or health science stream, they always think medicine, like that's the, the thing that they want to do. But I really want to encourage students coming into undergrad that medicine is not your only sole opportunity outside of science or life science or health science degree. There are a plentiful a plethora of opportunities out there you just have to look for them and you got to develop them on your own give yourself some breathing room to work and to develop your own kind of personality inside the academic sphere and and that will eventually lead to industry and other sorts of connections right um and so so what are you currently currently working on uh in biohybrids lab so I work with bacteriophages. So bacteriophages are viruses that solely infect bacteria. They're not harmful to our own mammalian cells, our human cells, like epithelial cells, for example. So they're not like coronavirus or influenza or HPV. They're not bad viruses. These are considered, in our perspective, good viruses because they don't harm us. They only harm bacteria. And I use these viruses to combat a wide variety of bacteria, most notably bacteria that are resistant to known antibiotics. So we're very much developing these viral treatments to combat antimicrobial resistance, which is starting to become a massive, massive global problem. Right. And how do you, what do you think is the importance of this for future pandemics if they occur? So it's not if, but when the antimicrobial resistant pandemic flourishes into a full grown pandemic as we know COVID-19 to be. So if you ask any antimicrobial researcher whether or not there is a pandemic right now, nine times out of 10 people will say yes. It is a major public health concern. It's a national security concern. It can cause a lot of damage to society as a whole. And we're at a point where people are getting infected by these antimicrobial resistant pathogens. Last year in the States, in the United States alone, there was approximately 2.3 million infections and approximately 35,000 deaths in the United States alone. Globally, it was approximately 750,000 deaths. Now, the World Health Organization appreciates this and recognizes the significance of this. And a report was released either a year or two ago, I can't remember, I think it was 2018, citing the fact that by 2050, on average, 10 million people will die because of antimicrobial-resistant infections every single year. That is significant. That, that is absolutely insane how many people will die from that. And it's only a matter of when. We know these bacteria are developing resistance to our current use antibiotics. So we either need to really innovate here, develop novel treatments, which is what we're doing, or really push the discovery of novel antimicrobial compounds. Right, and do you think our scientific community is actually getting prepared to get there? 
or are we still trying to like figure things out? It's difficult to say. I mean, I come from a different background for conventional antimicrobial discovery. So in general, how this works is you, you have a bacterial sample and you, you do what's called high throughput screen. You screen that bacteria against hundreds of thousands of compounds. At McMaster alone, we have libraries of up to a million compounds of different types of antimicrobial compounds that are known to kill fungi or, or bacteria. And you look for these hits that will actually kill these bacteria. And that's the conventional way to do antibiotic discovery. It's been done for years. It will continue to, to get great results. But the trouble with that is when you find a compound, you know that it's not a matter of if, again, it's a matter of when that bacteria will develop resistance to whatever compound you are, are, are you have found determined to be actually effective at killing that bacteria. For me, with viruses, there's a certain kind of wiggle room there in the sense that there's always been evolutionary arms race between bacteriophages and bacteria for all of, of human history and, quite frankly, the Earth's history. Bacteriophages have been around for millions of years. Wherever there are bacteria, there are bacteriophages. And so with that, because it's been an evolutionary arms race, when the bacteria mutates to develop resistance to that virus, the virus then mutates to, again, infect that bacteria. So it's almost like your bacteriophage, your treatment, is actually evolving with the bacteria in order to kill it. Now, to go back to, to circle back to your question, whether or not the community is in consensus with this, the straight answer is no. We don't actually know what the best course of action would be to develop these novel interventions. What I can say is that there are incredible minds out there at McMaster, at University of Toronto, across Canada, in states, across the world, who are developing these novel interventions. But in terms of an actual consistent pathway to develop those interventions, we it's not there. So, and I, and I don't think there should be either. I think there should be room for people to explore new avenues to develop these actual interventions. Right. And we don't want the exact same thing that happened with COVID to happen again. We really need to get prepared for that time. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, it's already shown that we are being more prepared for this eventual pandemic. I mean, um, a few months ago, a massive conglomerate of corporations and pharmaceutical companies got together and created a $1 billion fund that is committed to developing, I believe, at least four new antimicrobial compounds, antibiotic treatments by the end of 2025. So they're really, really pushing for um, the advancement of these antimicrobial compounds. So we are, we are going to be more prepared. It's just, it's going to be scary when it actually does happen. Right, for sure. Hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully that we are prepared and that we, we know how to combat the, the bacteria when they get here. I mean, we, we've been doing a really good job, especially in Canada with, with social distancing. All those concepts can be applied to bacteria as well. Bacteria are a little different though than viruses in terms of how long they can stand on surfaces, um, as well as how you uh, treat them and, and, and contain them. But overall, the social distancing that we're currently uh, performing right now during COVID, it would work extremely well for a bacteria pandemic as well.
Right. So now moving on to some more personal questions about your journey to becoming a graduate student. So a lot of us as students usually get fascinated by success, whether it is personal or professional, doesn't matter. But without knowing all the challenges that were faced along the way, um, I'm sure being in your position right now, being a researcher at BioHybrids Lab did not happen easily. So can you tell us about some of the challenges you faced along the way? Probably the largest challenge any undergraduate will experience is self-doubt. I mean, undergrad is not easy. It's supposed to be tough. It's, it's not like high school. When you get into university, you're there because you want to really advance your knowledge and, and, and deepen that knowledge in whatever field you want going in. And this is not just exclusive for the sciences, but also social sciences and business and anywhere. And I experienced a lot of self-doubt in second and third year. I was questioning what I wanted to do and whether or not all of the hardships in terms of late night studying and the anxiety and whether all that was worth it. And, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier about giving yourself some room to just breathe. And, and I really encourage everyone in undergrad to just take, take a moment and just breathe and remember why you're there, remember what makes you get up out of the bed, what makes you happy. And at the end of the day, so long as you're doing something that makes you happy, you will succeed. It might not be immediate, but so long as you stick with it, you will succeed. It's, it's like an investment. You can't just expect results to come by the very next day. It takes time. And of course, that return depends on what you're doing if you're if you're a researcher like me that return might take a year or so but if you're if you're looking to get a good mark on a test then two three weeks of really dedicated hardcore studying you'll get a fantastic mark on that test you just need to believe in yourself awesome thank you really for sharing that i'm sure a lot of our listeners can relate to that and would definitely appreciate your inspiring words Moving on to the next question, what do you think our scientific community needs the most right now? At the end of the day, I know it's a very pessimistic view on the world, but money really does drive a lot of things. And you see this with Operation Warp Speed down in the States with President Trump and his administration. And now they did a lot of things wrong with the pandemic. I think everyone can acknowledge that. But in terms of providing opportunities for development of vaccines and therapeutics, I must acknowledge they did, they did a good job. They provided the necessary resources to Moderna, for example, or Pfizer to actually develop these vaccines or therapeutics. And, you know, we actually might have a candid vaccine by the end of the year. It is possible. And I think if in general, governments and organizations diverted resources away from needless spending or needless cuts towards a scientific community to medicine, we could be developing a bunch, a bunch of novel therapeutics, vaccines, treatment plans, diagnostic procedures for a wide variety of diseases that currently go untreated or undiagnosed. And we could save thousands, if not millions of lives every year because of that. So I think if people or, or lawmakers or just government officials in general just saw the actual sheer potential of the scientific community in terms of advancement, 
if they divert more resources and funding to those agencies and to those researchers and communities, we could see a huge explosion in the sheer potential of our scientific abilities. And I think if that happened, then we would develop so many, so many, so many innovative solutions, not just for medicine, but also for climate change. I mean, climate change is also a severe threat to human life and not just because of the, 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 the weather, but in fact, climate change will result in even more pandemics, more pathogens being released. I mean, you have hundreds of thousand year old pathogens that are frozen solid in the Arctic that are now melting away. And now those pathogens that we, ha we as humans have no immunity towards, they're being released into the environment and who knows what will happen there. And you also have a wide variety of fungi and bacterial and viral pathogens that reside within the Amazon and now they're spreading because global temperatures are rising. So the fact that climate change is occurring is actually creating an even better environment for certain tropical or desert pathogens to actually spread to areas that they otherwise wouldn't have gone to in the first place. So in general, we really, if, if we push more resources to scientific community in general, we would actually likely be a safer planet. Right. And you brought up a great point there about climate change, which really shows that the problems that we are facing are not really just about let's say biology, biochemistry, or just like biotechnology. It's just like an interdisciplinary field that connects multiple disciplines, whether it's environmental science, biochemistry, and we all need to come together to solve issues that we are facing right now. Yep. And that's the amazing thing about science. It's, just, it's so interdisciplinary and everything is interconnected with each, with each other. Right. And if we all just work together and realize the fact that, oh, that thing over there is related to that thing over there, you can solve both things. It's incredible. So I really think that there should be more, more emphasis on cooperation and interdisciplinary work going forward. For sure. And our final question, if you were a novel, what would you be called and why? <laughs> a novel? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always stay curious. I mean, I... My parents raised me to always question things and to always ask, why am I doing this? And what is the purpose of doing that? And the moment when you lose sight of being curious is the moment that you no longer actually like doing what you're doing. If you're always able to wake up and ask yourself, what, how does that work? Or why does it work that way? Or if I did this, what would happen? In your, in your respective field, I mean, then you're in the right field. You're, in, you're doing the right work. And if you wake up one day and you realize you don't have that same passion, but you have a passion for something else, by all means, go explore that. Always, always trust your instinct and trust your gut. You know yourself the best, and you know what makes you curious about the world, and you should really, really strive to explore that. Thank you for sharing that. That was super awesome. That brings us to the end of this interview. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today. Thank you. I really, really appreciate this. And I look forward to speaking with you down the line and seeing how this podcast further explores. Awesome. Thank you. Make sure to check out our social media at SciSection to get updated on our latest events, episodes, and interviews. See you guys next week.